Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett from a quarantine cave in my den. Up next, my unedited conversation about the difference between loneliness and solitude with Buddhist teacher and writer Stephen Batchelor. And there's a shorter produced version of this, as always, wherever you found this podcast. Hello. Hello. <laughs> it was actually, it's a beautiful day here. I've got an echo, by the way. I hear my own voice. The, the echo will go away, I assume, right? I, well, we'll see. Ah, Is that better? That's much better. Hi, Stephen. It's Krista Tippett. Oh, hello, Krista. Hello. Lovely to... To speak to you That's again. Right, you too. Um, <laughs> are you are you traveling in uh, New Mexico or on retreat um, there? I'm basically uh, in Santa Fe for about mm-hmm. ten days, mm-hmm. and we are um, um, involved. I'm basically leading a, a, a retreat uh, with Joan Halifax. Oh, you are. Oh, well, would send her my love, please. I will. I will. <laughs> I'll have dinner with her tonight. Okay. Yeah. I know. I wondered. If, I wondered about that. If you were. Um, with that community. That's right. And mm-hmm. then I'm doing some other stuff in Santa Fe as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, then I go to Tucson in uh, about mm-hmm. 10 days' time. Have you... And where, where, where are you, by the way? I'd just like to get a uh, geographical sense. Yeah, are you... Um, we're, I'm in Minneapolis. So, Minneapolis? Yeah, so okay. heading okay. up towards the Canadian border. Very different yes, part of the country from New Mexico. It's so beautiful where you are, though. I was there for the first oh, time lovely. a few years ago. It's just gorgeous. Oh. Yeah. Yes, no, it is. Um, Very cold, though. Here? Well, oh, here is, here is cold. Oh, it's, it's cold there. Yeah, mm. well, here we went from like four to, what is it today? Is it 40? It feels like 55. I think it's 40, maybe. Uh, but it feels like a high summer. Okay. <laughs> All things being relative. Okay. All things being relative. Yes. Um yeah, so I think we can begin. Um, Chris, do you need a what you had for breakfast or anything like that? Sure. Tell me, did what? Um, let's just do a little sound check. Um, okay. Yeah, what did you have for breakfast? For breakfast, I had some uh, porridge, uh, oatmeal. I think it's called. On yeah, the, I was going to say America. we don't have porridge oatmeal. over here. <laughs> oatmeal and fruit and uh, mm-hmm. coffee, and that was it. Mm, okay. That well, it's it. it's lovely to be. To be speaking with you again, I I picked up. Well, I guess I got a, an advanced copy of the Art of Solitude from uh-huh. from the publisher, and I just um, I really just just um, I was using it as my kind of morning contemplative reading for the last few oh. months, and um, I, you know, actually, I'm not going to keep talking here. Let's start the interview because I want to just to get into what this means, and I think. How this is such an important dis- uh, conversation for everybody okay. who's alive now, especially in this culture. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I wonder how you would think about um, your earliest memory of or sense of what you now name and reflect on as solitude. I wonder where your mind goes <laughs> with that or where your uh, body goes. 
Well, my mind goes actually to my very first memories. And, and I wonder if our sense of being a solitary being is tied to our capacity to, in a way, be aware of ourselves. Yeah. Uh, to be self-conscious is at the same time also to aware that I'm, I'm in a way, start, I'm speaking to myself and no one else is hearing what's going on in my head. And um, that's where the story of me begins. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, it's a blank. And my first memory, at least as a, you know, my first memory was flying into Toronto as about a three-year-old and looking out of the plane window. And that's really where the story of Stephen began. And uh, I suppose a conscious concern with my own subject subjectivity, my own interiority. Uh, it all began there, and it continues until we lose consciousness at the end of our lives, and it all stops. Mm -hmm. So for me, solitude is really just another way of talking about what it's like to be the person you are, what it's like to be Krista, what it's like to be Stephen, mm. and what matters to Stephen and Krista, uh, and how we struggle with that, and we ponder it, and we reflect it, and it, and it evokes certain feelings, emotions in the body. It's very embodied, I feel. It is very embodied. Do you know when you when you when you evoke childhood in that way and becoming aware of oneself, you know, I almost when I think about about that awareness in childhood and and I think also, you know, in early childhood, but also kind of hitting adolescence, it could almost there could be an agony to it, right? Like <laughs> that, like you're kind of locked in this body and in these circumstances and nobody else understands or sees what you see. That's right. That's mm. right. Of course, in, 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 in many languages, English being somewhat the exception, solitude is, um, is equivalent really to loneliness. Yes. Uh, la solitude in French can for mainly means lo being lonely. Um, in English, we have the great advantage of a word that's relatively value-neutral. Ne value uh, we don't think of it as the same as loneliness. Mm -hmm. But in many ways, that it is the sight of loneliness, the sight mm -hmm. also of how we can also be at ease and at leisure, as Montaigne puts it, with ourselves. So it's And meditation, as, 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 as again the book discusses at quite some length, is really the, the management, the governance, the exploration, the cultivation and the practice of solitude. And... Um... So I think you 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 pointed at why this particular writing of yours and this reflection, and how I want to just kind of draw this out of you feels so. Um, it feel it feels very urgent actually right now or very uh -huh. present. Um, there's a lot of conversation now culturally in the U.S. and I and I know also in the U.K. Um, about loneliness being the great crisis of our age mm. um, and the young who are lonely, the elderly who are lonely. And I guess I, 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 I question that blank blanket statement because I wonder if, I think, I think that there's certainly, there's isolation that's being described. Um, but I also wonder if this is this moment for us to understand the distinction between loneliness and solitude, between isolation and aloneness, which is a, which is a fact of, of being human, and in fact something that um, 
the spiritual traditions, but not just the spiritual tr- traditions, would say that we can, that is that is generative, is creative, is 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 how we become. Um, so I, I kind of just I'd love to jump off that kind of how this this language and its nuances, or without too much nuance, is is being analyzed um, in the midst of our life together right now. Yes, that's right. Uh, the, there's a book coming out in London shortly called uh, History of Loneliness. Mm. I, I don't think it's published yet. But certainly, when I, since I've been in, interested in writing on solitude, I've picked up from the broader culture, uh, particularly the concern of isolation, of loneliness, of, of elderly people yeah. being left by their families in these so-called care homes. And... Um, of course, what strikes uh, the, 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 the primary note is this sense of being cut off. Right. And what that also shows, I think, is that we live in a culture in which um, being connected, being having a sense of belonging, uh, having a work, a meaningful work environment and so on, this is so crucial to our identity. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't live in a culture that educates us or trains us to actually learn to be more comfortable with ourselves. Yeah, right. And loneliness, <laughs> which is odd in a way. I mean, in, 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 perhaps it would have been the case more in, re, in religious communities. But again, in the West, we haven't had such an emphasis on the value of meditation or contemplation as something you would do by yourself. And I feel also the one of the responses to the crisis of loneliness, if we could call it that, um, is simultaneously this uh, interest in meditation, mm-hmm. uh, particularly, I think, meditation taken out of religious context, the practice of mindfulness, for example. So you feel um, that, 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 the, that the rise in mindfulness and meditation is, is in part a response to this? I think so. Uh-huh. I think it is. And yeah. I, meet many, I meet many people now who come on my retreats who have never had any interest in, in Buddhism or, mm-hmm. or religion or spirituality. But then for some reason or another, they have to deal with some anxiety, maybe even loneliness. They find themselves offered an eight-week course in mindfulness. And a certain number of those people who embark on that uh, training, discover that not only does it help them deal better with anxiety, let's say, but it also awakens them to the fact that they can be by themselves and it's okay. Uh, Just to come to rest in the natural rhythm of the breath, Mm -hmm. for example, and and to not feel that you have to be doing anything else, to not feel that you have to be endlessly connecting. In in contrast, and we have busy. this uh, just busy and busy, right. just busy and right. uh, and social media, internet, mm-hmm. uh, email, tweets. All of this stuff is going in the very opposite direction to solitude. Mm-hmm. In fact, it actually almost seems to be designed to, pro- to to not allow a single microsecond alone, but you're always connected. Um, whereas the, mindfulness seems to be pointing in the opposite direction. Do you know um, Sherry Turkle, who's at MIT? Mm-hmm. Who wrote a book? I think called "Alone Together." But anyway, you know, she, right. she had this, this. She has this this sentence that's very similar to many things you say. That if, you know, if we don't teach our children to be alone, um, they will only know how to be lonely. And that those oh. are two different things. Um, I, I, you know, I lived in Germany for a long time, and um, 
I thought about this a lot. Also, you mentioned this with language, that there's only this word Einsamkeit, Einsamkeit. which at this one and the same time would be used for solitude and loneliness. But I saw you speaking in Germany and you 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 create I don't know if you created this word or if it exists in philosophy, Einsam sein, to be alone. Um rather than or aloneness rather than loneliness but you know it's not just that that this is the human condition that we are born alone and that we die alone but alone, exactly. but there's so much um there's so much generativity and creativity and as you say ease which which we actually have to we have to learn um that becomes possible in knowing how to be alone no, that's that's absolutely right. Uh, the um, they're translating the book into German at the moment, mm-hmm. and they're struggling with the title. Right, uh, Einsamkeit. It's not going to work. Einsam sein, being alone, mm-hmm. was one option, but they feel that's too technical a term. It's yeah. not an everyday expression, so they've translated it as uh, uh, "die Kunst mit sich selbst, uh, mit sich selbst allein zu sein," the it's art of being alone, alone with, with oneself. Right. And that captures it actually very, very well. It does. It's the art of being alone with yourself. In other words, just being in your own company and not only being okay with that, but also, as you suggest, recognizing that this is the source, this place of just settling is the place you find yourself. For example, if you're a poet or a painter, that's where your ideas begin. That's where your imagination, your creativity all start to, as it were, be be germinated and then mm-hmm. find form. And um, I think it's very striking that the artist, uh, the, the person who spends a lot of time alone in a studio, just with their materials, just with their imagination, that is a, a dimension of our culture that does has learned these skills, but of course with a very specific aim of producing art. What I think our society is in enormous need of is a training in aloneness, in being alone with mm-hmm. oneself that goes right back to the beginning of one's education as a human person, particularly in a world that's lost touch with so many uh, traditional spiritual and contemplative ways right. of doing this. I mean, we need a secular awareness of that sort, yes. as it were. And you you do use the language of the art of solitude. That is your... Um, that is the title of this of this of this book you've written, um, which um, I've been ever since it was sent to me. Um, which is, I guess, a perk of this particular job I have that I get books before mm-hmm. they are published. That I've been kind of took it as my morning contemplative reading, which is something I do in addition to my practice of stillness, mm-hmm. um, and and I think that that language of 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 this as an art. Um, is also instructive, and so yeah. So what I so what I'd like to keep doing is just I mean, what you did in this in this in these this book, which is a series of essays, is kind of walk other people through how you, in particular, have pondered and worked with and lived with this reality of solitude and the possibilities in it. Um, its complexity, right, and its hardness mm. as well as its uh, its delight. And and you've done that by drawing on and being accompanied by all kinds of teachers across time and space, including um, including artists. I I do want to you, but it seems to me also. When did you become you? You became ordained a Tibetan Buddhist monk, correct? Yes, that's when, right. And now you grew up in the UK. 
um, not Tibetan Buddhist, but but, but not <laughs> but came to this tradition when you were very young, I believe. That's right. I I I, I completed high school in England. Okay, uh, and I didn't do at all well. And I took a year off, and I headed off for India, as one did then. This was in 1972, yeah. and I was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. And I traveled overland with a bunch of other hippie types. And, but as soon as I crossed the border into India from Pakistan, I headed for Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan exile community was based. Mm, yeah. And um, as soon as I landed in Dharamsala, I met Tibetan lamas. They were offering courses on Buddhist meditation, on Buddhist philosophy, and I just dove straight in. And I've never really stopped. That's where my physical traveling came to an end, as it were, and my journey became very much more introspective, Mm -hmm. inward-looking. And and that's really, I I think I must have had a deep yearning for some kind of uh, introspective awareness. I, I, I always remember as a child at school, Uh, sitting in a classroom, and we were studying whatever you study, English literature or mathematics or physics or whatever. And I used to sit at my desk and and just puzzle to myself, why don't they talk about what actually it's like to be a person from the inside? Why do they not talk about the things we agonize about in the playground after the class? Um, Why is there this kind of... I felt it was a kind of an embarrassment... Uh, for them, of, uh, you were embarrassed for, for them. them. Yes, yeah. right. Uh, right. That somehow there was a, a, a taboo part of our lives mm-hmm. that for all of us was the one that mattered most, how I feel. And yet that was, in a sense, off limits. Education didn't go there. Mm-hmm. The teachers, even when they were giving us more personal advice, didn't go there. Uh, the I remember some engagements I had with the local uh, vicar of the church, and he too seemed to not have any kind of interest in actually talking about and and struggling with what it meant to be a conscious being. And it was only when I got to India and met Tibetan lamas that they were able to talk about these things without any embarrassment whatsoever, as though it were just a natural part of the human landscape. And they offered all kinds of... Which it is, of course it is. And and, uh, they offered not only, you know, insight into this fact, but also, more importantly, uh, disciplines and trainings, meditations, uh, exercises that actually allowed you to um, actually be comfortable and actually to thrive in this inwardness. And... um, and it is an art, as the title of the book right. suggests. I think the art element is very, very crucial to this. And you took a journey, I believe, when you were 20 or 21, into solitude. Was it in the Himalayan foothills of Dharamsala? Um, that it, it sounds like that taste, maybe which was an early taste of really immersing in this, in aloneness, um, in solitude, really has continued to work on you to this day. Would that, is that right? That's, that's absolutely right. But I think even before I formally went and did solitary meditation retreats, what I found likewise when I was still in my teens and part of the, the 1960s uh, counterculture, um, it was sometimes taking psychedelic drugs in nature, uh, often by myself or with one or two other friends, that once more 
opened up this dimension of who we are and in such a way that it was no longer lonely or scary, but actually it was utterly fascinating. Right, uh, right. To, to, to somehow be able to, in a way, celebrate the extraordinary fact of being conscious, of, of being a, a creature with a mind and awareness and consciousness. Um, that's, I feel, possibly where that began. But it, again, we've already gone back in. I think another part of this for me and this is getting rather psychological, I guess, is that I grew up without a father. Mm. And I felt that marked me off somehow as different. And the feelings of not being in a two-parent family caused me a lot of of, of anxiety and anguish. And that, too, I think, opened me up to how do I deal with this? How Mm. do I cope with these feelings that everybody refuses to talk about, including my mother? That, too, I think, was a trigger. But really, it was the first retreats I did where you consciously say, okay, for the next week, I'm just going to do these spiritual exercises. Um, Then, of course, you know, it becomes a much more disciplined uh, practice, an art, as it were, that you start to get a feel for, a taste for. And, um, And that, I think, is really the wellspring of this entire project, mm-hmm. this solitude project, as I call it to myself, okay. that um, has now come out as this book. And so back then, I believe one of your earliest books you wrote, um, which reflected and which came, I'm sure, out of that, that, that the beginning of the solitude project, mm-hmm. we, was you wrote was Alone with Others, which was an existential approach to Buddhism and, and a very philosophical text. And mm-hmm. The writing you've been doing more recently um, and reflecting, and, and obviously this writing also reflects your reading of others and meditating with, with other lives and, and artworks, um, mm-hmm. is, is, a, is very different. And I mean, so, so let's talk through some of the, the thinkers who have inspired and been your teachers in this project. And mm-hmm. um, Montaigne is... A prime example, Michel de Montaigne, the mid-16th century um, French uh, aristocrat philosopher. You wrote of him, for him, there was nothing more joyful, lively, and playful, I would almost say more sexy than philosophy. <laughs> but, but, but really, he was about, he just indulged in the project he called Myself with a capital M. <laughs> no, that's right. That's yeah. right. The, the, I think the, this whole exploration begins for me as a writer, um, having studied uh, Buddhist philosophy and having recognized that, uh, particularly in Mahayana Buddhism, they make a very clear distinction between the project of wisdom, which is understood to be something one does really for one, oneself in a way, as opposed to the practice of compassion, which is very much yeah. an, an outward expression of that wisdom. And so they talk of these as the two wings of the bird sometimes, uh, wisdom, which is inward, and compassion, which is outward. And their definition of a Buddha or an awake being is one in whom these two dimensions have been have been realized and are no longer, in a sense, in opposition to each other, but have become integrated in a figure of wholeness um, in which inwardness and outwardness are just part and parcel of your experience of being fully human. Mm -hmm. And in looking for a more Western language uh, to express that insight, I came across the theology of Paul Tillich. Yes. And I 
studied his, uh, this is when I was still a young Tibetan Buddhist monk. He wrote about God as the ground of being. That's right, God is the ground of being. But God, in, in his systematic theology, a big, thick volume, he talks of God as actually being constituted of what he calls ontological polarities. Mm. He's trying to get away from any sense of God as a sort of personalized figure. And instead of this ground of being is structured according to certain uh, principles. And one of those principles is the polarity between, um, between aloneness and participation. I think another one is between freedom and conditioning. And there's another one too, which I forget. But that really struck me. that This um, way of thinking enabled us to somehow have an idea of, of God, or to put it in non-theistic language, what really matters for us most at the ground of our being, and to see that that likewise uh, embraces both dimensions, as does the Buddhist philosophy mm -hmm. of wisdom and compassion. Mm -hmm. And that's what was the trigger that led me to write the book Alone with Others. So I basically took uh, Tillich's theological ideas and used that as a frame for articulating the Buddhist philosophy that I was studying with the Tibetans at that time. Yeah, there's a there's a paradox at the heart of this this solitude. The 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 closer you move into it, right? Mm -hmm. That I mean, here's one way you wrote about it: solitude is not to be found in a forest. It's not to be found in a deep state of formless meditation. It's to be found by learning to dwell in your body, in your senses. But really, it also, while on the surface, it it it's something that takes us away from others or meets the fact that we are mm -hmm. inherently away from others, um, it takes us back outward as well eventually, right? It, exactly. That, that, that is the paradox of solitude. And in many ways, the book is a series of reflections that more or less culminates in acknowledging and then, I wouldn't say resolving, but at least learning to see that solitude is not something that stands separated off from others. Uh, and this is where it becomes loneliness. If we think right. in the, the, the term terms of Tillich or we think in terms of wisdom and compassion, we see that actually you can't really have one without the other at all, that they are inseparable parts of our humanity. And one of the deep paradoxes of our humanity is that we're in each moment, when I'm speaking to you now, for example, um, there's a part of that in which I'm aware of my own inner feelings and maybe anxieties, and there's another part of it which is only possible because I'm engaged in a conversation with another person. Mm -hmm. And you can never step out of all of that. Even the, the hermit living in the middle of nowhere is still acutely aware that he or she is a social being. They, the very language that forms in our solitary mind is not ours. It's the language of our community, of our, of our culture. The, the terms within which we think are those of our religion, our philosophy. Uh, in other words, you cannot escape yourself. It's impossible. You cannot step away from your embeddedness in life. And, and I, at the same yeah. time, we've got the other side too. We, you know, that's, I've, I've just repeated myself. No, no, no. Well, I just, <laughs> I think that also in this, in this, in the contemplation of, of solitude and the philosophy around it and the, in, in deep experience of it, um, there is this, insistence that we we 
that we become in some ways more present and more worthy to be present to others mm-hmm. when we have when we do own our own salt. I mean, thinking about Rilke writing to his young poet about yes. not rushing into relationship because you know that 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 the, that the true that the that the deep relationship will be two solitudes saluting each other right that that it's yes. so important i think which many of us learn the hard way as we go through life with yes. broken relationships mm-hmm. that we actually needed to be at home in ourselves before we could actually be at home with another uh, which i guess exactly. is another paradox here at the at the heart of this conversation we're having you know, it, it is certainly another paradox and i think of a, a, a very a very a very important one and um i worry about how with social media and so forth people are never are having less and less and less time to really with value themselves with themselves yeah. and um i think that is true i my, my own training as a monk in contemplative traditions has not made me become sort of isolated and introspective and sort of wary of other people, very much the opposite. I find that having that groundedness, uh, that, 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 that uh, sort of, I think a sort of a, a basic uh, sense of, of being okay, uh, mm-hmm. of, of being mm-hmm. at home mm-hmm. with myself, is the foundation from which I can then, as it were, really communicate more authentically and more directly with others. I'm not concerned about what they think about me or what they are going to say or what they want, but I have a resource within myself that is my own, you know, deeply earned truth, if you like, or, or, or integrity. And that's where I live, not just for me, but it's only meaningful in the sense that that can become the foundation for how I interact and relate to my, those who are close to me, of course, but also in my work situations. And I think also much more broadly than that through literature, through art, in which we seek to somehow communicate these values. I seek somehow mm-hmm. to communicate what I've learned uh, and make it somehow transparent and available and uh, important for other people. I think that, that was such, a, such an excellent description of... Um of the very practical benefits of 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 um, walking with solitude rather than resisting it. Um, yes, I wanted to actually just open up your book and and read. So Montaigne is one of your teachers, companions in this uh, solitude project. Would that be Would that be a fair way to yes. say that? Yes. Oh, oh, Montaigne <laughs> is is one of my guiding lights. One of your guiding lights. So you know, oh, here's yes. some of the things that he wrote. Um, you know, hundreds of you, four hundred years ago, um, thinking about these very things. Uh, I've just just marked a few of them. Um, that is why it is not enough to remove oneself from people, not enough to go somewhere else. We have to remove ourselves from the habits of the populace that are within us. <laughs> yes. We have to isolate our own self and return it to our possession. We carry our chains with us. We are not entirely free. We keep returning our gaze to the things we have left behind. We fantasize about them constantly. These are some of the things that we start to mm-hmm. mm, to have some... Well, to make our companions rather than our enemies, I guess, if we can, if, if we take on solitude. Here's something else. Let these things be ours, but not so glued and joined to us that we cannot detach ourselves from them without ripping off our own skin in the process. The greatest thing in the world is to know how to be yourself. 
Here's another one. He said, we have a soul that can turn in on itself. It can keep itself company. It has the means to attack and defend, to give and receive. Don't worry that solitude will find you hunched up in boredom. (laughs) (laughs) And I do actually think that for 21st century people, that would be a fear if you say, be more solitary. Right? Absolutely. No, it is. It's scary for people. Mm -hmm. Um, Even when I lead meditation retreats and we ask people to, to, to enter silence, for some people, that is utterly terrifying. Uh, the fact that you can't communicate with someone, um, that you somehow have to just be within yourself, um, means you somehow are no longer allowed to sort of leech out into the world. Montaigne uses this expression, uh, I think it's also in the book. He says that um, uh, our, our lives are always leaking away. We're like a barrel that's got lots of leaks in it. And uh, we're constantly sort of in a way, sort of incontinently spilling out into right. the social and the other world. And again, if you think of, of social media, that's what it's like. It's sort of like an incontinence almost. And um, the practice of solitude, as Montaigne puts it so very well in the passage you read, is to somehow uh, is to somehow bring all that back into ourselves, to not let our emotions and our thoughts just sort of dissipate out into the world, but to gain some way in which we harness those energies, we return them to our own inner awareness, inner consciousness, and we become, therefore, much more, um, much more careful and much more caring as to how we do express mm. ourselves. So once again, it's this idea that solitude actually establishes the foundation for, rather than just saying the first thing that comes into your head and letting it blather out into the world, we actually take a more reasoned and reflective, a calmer, a slower way of saying and acting in ways that hopefully others will will find of value. Mm. And um, so once again, solitude, interaction, in the end, turn out to be two parts of the same of the same experience. Yeah, here's that, the passage you just noted from Montaigne and where he continues, which I will say, you know, I, I read this um, following on what you just said and I, it reads so differently um, in this time where we have so many distractions, right? So he said, um, recover your mind and your will, which are busying themselves elsewhere. You are draining away and scattering yourself Concentrate yourself. Hold yourself back. Yeah. You are being betrayed, dissipated, robbed. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And uh, what I found particularly striking is that Montaigne had no knowledge whatsoever of Buddhism. Buddhism, was, didn't, they didn't even know it existed mm-hmm. in the 16th, 16th century France. Mm-hmm. And we fi- I find him using words like leek, for example. That is a classical Buddhist term called asava, which means the, le- the leaks, the leaking. In our, and these in are our psyches or in our, in our, yeah, in in our, our psyche, life in our, energies? Yeah, uh, yeah, in our psyches. Mm-hmm. Our, mm-hmm. So the, he, he understands this idea of, of leaking. Um, he understands also very much about the importance of, in a sense, retaining and holding our energies and our thoughts and our emotions within ourselves and somehow creating a crucible of awareness. He doesn't use the words meditation at all. But when I read Montaigne through my whoops, when I read when I read Montaigne through my Buddhist spectacles, 
um, I'm astonished that how much he somehow stumbled across through his own inquiries and through his own reading of Greek philosophy uh, that brings us to uh, insights that are completely in accord with what you'll find in a book on mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find that striking. I yes. find that what that points to is there's some commonality in humid inwardness, whether you're a Buddhist or you're a Roman Catholic like Montaigne, that if you pay attention to your inwardness, you'll start coming up with very similar insights. You'll even start using a similar kind of language. And that's one of the things that really struck me in this book was the uh, was reading Montaigne through Buddhist eyes. Mm. I also found that many of the translators of Montaigne into English didn't get that. And so I've translated ah. all the passages again ah. uh, in order to reveal, from my perspective, the uh, the contemplative side of Montaigne that is, in a sense, supported by oh, that's so the literature we now have on Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and I and I I'm just I'm just underscoring this. I mean, when you you know even using the language of holding in, which culturally might sound like repression, but this is sovereignty, mm. right? Yes, this is exactly. taking charge of who you wish to be and who you who That's you right. wish to be in the presence of others as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the language, the inwardness, as you're saying, interiority, which you which you said when we first began to speak. Um, I feel like the, just that language is very fresh um, because we do tend to be so externally focused um, right. in our lives. Um, you know, I feel like I feel like interior life is what we are pointing when we at a at a very elemental level when we speak of spiritual life. Exactly. I think I think it's in many ways a more I find it a more helpful language than the word spiritual, which means a million different things to different people is extraordinarily difficult to actually pin down and define it's often used as a kind right. of a it's... like religion light mm-hmm. in other words without all the difficult problematic bits mm-hmm. um, interiority is not without the problematic bits though <laughs> that has its problematic too <laughs> right. um, i like the word inwardness this is mm-hmm. something that i picked up somewhat late in this project by reading a recent biography of uh, kierkegaard ah. um, he uses the word inwardness And Kierkegaard's life, um, I think, is a wonderful example of a life of deep but also troubled inwardness. But he captures it very well, I think, in in, in some of his language. Mm. Um, But yes, I think inwardness. But the problem with all of these terms is that they suggest that it's a sort of a zone apart. It's something you can... uh, Right. It's a way to cut off, a way to... right excise yourself from the fabric of society. But the paradox of solitude, as we've mentioned, is in many ways realizing that more deeply you go into yourself in this, in, in this deeply conscious, reflective way, you find at some point the rest of humanity somehow is looking back. You come full yes. circle towards <laughs> yeah. uh, your reconnection with uh, the world that you at least outwardly seem to have uh, removed yourself. It's very, it's very weird that, and you find that again th- running through different traditions. Yes. Um, Emerson has a wonderful citation about uh, the, the, what he calls the sweetness of solitude. You preserve the sweetness of your solitude in the midst of the crowd. Uh, <laughs> and Montaigne makes that point too. Possibly Emerson took it from Montaigne. Well, I was thinking but, of that when Montaigne talks about the populace that, that are within us of the 
the language I wasn't it Thoreau of um, I can we can I contain multitudes right that's right. Uh, yeah. I think that was, was Whitman, it, was it wasn't Whitman? It? Whitman you're right it was more Whitman, Whitman. But, I always get that wrong but, but it, it, that too I, again it's the sort of thing I should have perhaps quoted in the book but the, the more you I proceeded in this solitude project the more I found in the most unexpected places um, uh, people like Whitman Emerson Thoreau uh, they're all somehow attuned. To this dimension, and they're all yes. struggling to articulate it in their own particular ways. I, I, would, I wonder if you'd speak a little bit about Vermeer, the the Dutch painter who also was um, gave you much to reflect on, meditate on, um, in thinking about solitude, what it is. Well, Vermeer, um, again, since I was uh, a teenager. Um, for some reason, I've always been deeply attracted to the paintings of Vermeer. Uh, there are very few of them. About 35 have come down to us. And in particular, I'm drawn to his portraits of uh, solitary women in domestic environments. And those paintings are, are the ones that I explore in this book. And I feel that more than any other artist I can think of, I mean, possibly Rembrandt would be an exception, uh, Vermeer captures what it's like to be human from the inside. Uh, and I spent a lot of time looking at Vermeer's paintings with this perspective in mind. Um, I was recently, just a few days ago, um, at, the, at the Met in New mm. York, and there they've made a separate ex exhibition of all of the the Dutch masters uh, that they have in their collection. So you can see all the Vermeers and the Rembrandts together. But Rembrandt has achieved something that other artists don't quite do, and that is to be able to look at this woman pouring a jug of water, of milk, or a woman sewing lace or whatever, and you can weirdly feel what it's like to be them, hmm. what it's like. You can imagine what they're hearing and, and, and thinking and feeling, and it's uncanny how he does this. And uh, so he too has been a very, very important inspiration in this project. The other thing, of course, about Vermeer is that we know nothing about him whatsoever. No. We have a few legal documents. We have his signature on some of the paintings. We have his wife, you know, his, his uh, will and testament, I think. But who is he? He, he vanishes. And all we are left with are these uh, reminders of his time and place in these paintings. And I feel that when the subjects of the paintings, particularly these women, are looking at you from the painting, they're actually looking at him, hmm. uh, which they would have been. He um, would have been One there. of the things that you said that you, you really experience kind of... Um you experience of kind of coming off the canvas is that these, first of all, these are not women who are nuns or hermits. They're in the midst mm -hmm. of um, ordinary domestic settings. And you say they are alone, but do not appear lonely. Which is That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and I think Vermeer captures that so well because his women are in domestic situations doing something. The famous, the most famous painting of Vermeer is The Girl with the Pearl Earring. Mm -hmm. I don't mention that at all because I don't think it achieves that for the simple reason that it's, it's just a head and shoulder portrait against a, a, just a black backdrop. It's completely decontextualized. It's technically called a trony 
which means a sort of an archetypal portrait, but it's not located anywhere. So you don't, therefore, get the feeling of what it's like for her to be her from the inside as you do with the dozen or so paintings of women in domestic situations where it's the situation itself, the room and the beautiful embroidered uh, carpets and so on, that together creates the understanding of solitude, not just a head and shoulder portrait uh, looking into a person's face, which once again, I think, shows how for solitude, an image of solitude to be fully realized, it has to be embedded in a social environment. If you strip it out of that, it falls flat. It's as though a third dimension is missing. missing. It's just two-dimensional. And, you know, I think I want to just um, spend a little bit of time on a, a paradox that's kind of running through all of this, um, which is at one and the same time we're speaking of we're speaking of becoming at home in oneself with one's interiority, with one's interior world, with, you know, an inner ease. And the reality that, that you also write about so well and that we actually all know, whether we've thought about it in this context or not, is that the world inside us is a very complex, often troubled place. Um, which is why, um, for you, uh, the tools uh, of of Buddhism, the tools and teachings of and and of Buddhist psychology as an analysis of of interior life and the complexity of mm-hmm. of um, of living with that um, uh, is, is has been so helpful in really in in this in your your solitude project. So I just wonder if you see a little bit about that the. Heart, this that you know, we've spoken in the beginning about how to be alone, to be at home in ourselves is something that I think human beings we are all drawn to and yet terrified of. Um, and that's why when we do have teachers and um, and tools, um, I mean, that that we need that. That you know, you use the word training early on, yes. No, that's. That, to me, I think, is also absolutely central to my exploration of solitude, is my having been introduced to tools, contemplative tools, uh, that we can actually use uh, to to practice solitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a danger, I think, of thinking of solitude uh, as some kind of place, some kind of space uh, within us. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel that when you start to think of it as a practice, as, as a training, then that practice, and it might be doing mindfulness meditation 20 minutes a day or whatever it is, is that we actually start sculpting, I would say, refining, shaping the contours of our inwardness, the contours of our interiority. Uh, And that's a lot of work because, as Montaigne and the Buddha both pointed out, there's all of these uh, fantasies and and paranoid thoughts and uh, deep emotions and fears that are constantly crowding out, they're taking over uh, our own. It's very difficult to be inwardly still. Yes. Anyone who's tried meditation thinks, oh, that sounds really nice. Yeah, I'll go and sit quietly, close my eyes, and watch my breath. And the next, you know, two nanoseconds later, you've been <laughs> You're overtaken. Not right, by, right. Yeah, you've got, you know, overtaken yeah. any kind of nonsense that's running through your mind. So you realize, and I realized this at a, at, a, at a young age, 18, 19 years old, that I had no 
mastery or control over my inner processes whatsoever, and yet I had this egotistic conceit that I was the guy in charge. And that is, again, I think, uh, something we, in our society, we, you know, we, we're, we're strong egos, we're responsible, blah, blah, blah. But actually, when you stop and look at what's actually going on inside you, that whole notion of being the CEO of your mind uh, begins to disintegrate very fast. Right. And you, so if we're going to work with that, as Montaigne recognized, this was Montaigne's great discovery. He goes into his lovely little tower to spend his time alone in solitude and all hell breaks loose. He said, my right. mind was like sort of galloping horses or something like that, over right. which I had no control. It threw him into a depression. And the way he got out of that depression was by carefully analyzing what was actually going on in his thoughts and feelings and emotions. And that's what brought him out. In other words, he too realized that solitude was a, was a site of practice, a site of doing something. Solitude is something you refine and develop and create. And meditation, from mindfulness to all the other different traditions that uh, have these uh, forms of practice, are ways in which we can learn to actually create a, a solitude in which we feel at home and grounded. And uh, again, I think crucially, uh, it has to do with refining our ethical intelligence. Mm. It has to do with refining our capacity to see where our impulses are coming from, uh, to what extent those impulses are just driven by conditioning and habit and fear, and to what extent we can somehow open up a non-reactive space within us from which we can respond to the world, respond to our own needs too, but in a way that's not driven by uh, familiar habit patterns which are often rooted in attachment and fear and other things. So solitude, the practice of solitude, is the practice of, of, of creating an inward autonomy within ourselves, an inward freedom from the power of these overwhelming thoughts and emotions. You know, and that, yeah. Go on, go on. That, that is nirvana. <laughs> in my understanding, that is nirvana. I've, I've, Solitude is, is just another way of talking about nirvana, frankly. I'm, I'm, really, um, I'm really drawn to the, to the language you used of this is ethical intelligence, this inner, this yeah. inner work, and not, not merely emotional intelligence, but that in fact... To the extent that we cultivate what I think is more commonly what would more commonly in this culture be described as emotional intelligence, that that is yes. that becomes ethical intelligence, pra pra um, applied ethical intelligence. Absolutely. And uh, <clears throat> a friend of mine, a German philosopher called Thomas Metzinger, <clears throat> is advocating a form of uh, uh, an ethics of consciousness, hmm. and recognizing that ethics is not just reducible to what we say and what we do and how that impacts upon the world. But our own interiority is a field of ethical behavior. In other words, when we practice mindfulness, we feel that we recognize that we're confronted with a choice, a choice to go along with the fantasy that's about to burst out or not. That's an ethical choice. Mm. I'm actually saying it's better to not get caught up in that story. It's better... I'm preferring to choose to be still and to let that go. That, I think, is where the point where ethics truly begins. Mm. Um, that's the foundation on which we then will move to choices as to what to say, what to do. But initially, it's the choice of how to behave within ourselves, what inner choices to make that will 
provide us with a more, uh, a more suited, a more appropriate foundation uh, for then engaging in actual actions in the world. Uh, and Buddhism has acknowledged this all along. It's always understood that uh, ethics is both in mental, vocal, and physical. And we don't have really a language for an inner ethic. And um, solitude, I think, right. provides right. us with a we frame don't. in which we can start talking about that. Or we, we think of it as something that is merely private, right? Which is and, yes, right. which again is a, <laughs> yeah. it's a, it, it doesn't help because that's reinforcing this notion that, mm -hmm. that there's in, inside us somewhere there's a bit that really has nothing to do with the rest of the world, yeah. uh, my private space. At an immediate level, that's what it feels like, certainly. And it is true that we cannot really share those deep inner feelings that are peculiarly our own. But that doesn't mean that it's somehow an experience that is, is divorced from our, the rest of our lives. It's not. It's simply, a, it, it, if we think in terms of spectrums rather than outward and inner, which feeds a kind mm. of binary thinking, there's the outside world, there's the inside world. If we think, if we abandon binary thinking and think more in terms of life as, as operating along a spectrum, at one end of which is our sheer interiority, at the other end of the, which is our, our sheer physicality in a, in a shared world, um, I think we can perhaps find a way to talk more usefully about an inner ethic for example, mm. uh, about a cultivation of solitude, which is not a removal from the world, but actually a preparing ourselves to be more fully and more uh, dynamically in relationships in the world. You know, one thing that's striking me, I mean, you, you are British, I'm American, we're both white Western people of the... Uh, I don't know, Enlightenment or post-Enlightenment West. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and these figures, Montaigne and Vermeer, are also from this, are in this lineage. Although your uh, ordination uh, and so much of your experience of all of this came in India and through Tibetan Buddhism, is this a, is this a particularly Western maybe even a white Western phenomenon of separating, of privatizing our inner lives to this extent so that now we're really, we're really, I mean, this move, I feel that what you're describing is something that so many people are ready to make, although it's hard work, so we have to talk about yeah. what the work is, right? Um, uh, but that we're actually working our way back to something that is natural and innate, that we that we kind of skewed. And I don't know, have you thought about this, this question of the West? Yes, I have. And um, one of the things that uh, uh, I find striking about Montaigne is that he's drawing his philosophy, and in many ways his whole language of, of solitude, the language of the essays, is deeply influenced particularly by the early Greek philosophy uh, of uh, skepticism. Uh, or the figure of Socrates, but mm -hmm. particularly the skeptics. Montaigne thinks of himself as a, pir a Pyrrhonist, a follower of Pyrrho. Now, we know that Pyrrho, from, from the Greek records, traveled with Alexander the Great to India and studied with Indian sages. Okay. And, uh, and so, although Montaigne's not aware of that, perhaps, 
he is, in a way, tapping into a similar thought world that existed in about the 5th century BC, sometimes the period called the Axial Age. And he's tapping into a current of thinking and behaving that would have been very, very similar to the world of the Buddha, um, who was there, what, living 100 years before Piro got to India, and other sages and teachers of India of that period. And so what I feel um, I've been led to is a, a falling away of the notion of a distinction between the West and the East. Uh, we find the Buddha, who's not a Westerner remotely, he's talking of citta viveka and kaya viveka, which means inner solitude as opposed to outer solitude. Mm. Uh, we find the Buddha well, what, what is, is constantly... outer solitude? What is that? Well, outer solitude is uh, when you, you, know, you go off to the top of the mountain and you sit in a cave and basically your mind is a complete chaotic mess. <laughs> but you are physically... Um, solitude uh, you know, in body only. <laughs> solitude in body <laughs> okay. only. Exactly. Right. That's yeah. that's okay. of course very that's dead easy. Okay. <laughs> right. The, re the re real solitude is is learning to be solitary within yourself. In okay. other words, the outward solitude is a good metaphor for inner solitude. Outward solitude means you 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 take yourself away to somewhere where you're no longer constantly being bombarded by what else is going on in the world. You go to a mountaintop. Inward solitude is somewhat similar. Uh, you go to a space or you cultivate a space within yourself where you are likewise no longer under constant bombardment from the stuff that's going on in your mind. Mm -hmm. That's that, that is inner okay. solitude. And, right. and Montaigne recognizes that. Yeah. Um, the Buddha recognizes that. I suspect Piro and others did too. And here we've gone beyond, I think, anything distinctive about Eastern culture, Western culture, which um, I'm, I'm a little bit wary of using that language, particularly in our increasingly globalized world. Yes. Uh, these distinctions, I think, are a legacy of colonialism, actually. Mm. And um, I think we can kind of let go of all of that and we can recover what is common to our humanity, no matter whether we are, no matter how we are gendered, no matter what our racial or ethnic type might be, our religion, our history, we'll find, I think, in many of these inquiries, uh, this primary paradox between inwardness and being out in the world in some physically visible way. So I hope that one of the things my book might uh, somehow reveal is the fact that this is not just the reflections of a white middle-class uh, Western male, in my case, um, but hopefully, and again, I wouldn't want to you know, disown this too much. I probably, it is a, you know, I cannot deny who I am and my, what my history has been. But I feel that we're touching a level of language and human experience here that uh, transcends those binaries, transcends those yeah. uh, identities. Now, you are no longer a monk. Is, is that correct? And you, That's you correct, married. Yes, no. You married. I'm married. You married yeah. and you married. Is that you? No. Oh, where is that coming from? I don't know. Music coming from. <laughs> we will track it down. We're not quite sure where it is. It's on your end somewhere. Ah, <laughs> uh, it was one of those dreadful devices called an iPhone. Okay, well, and that's what we would have expected all along. Sprang, or some equivalent. It sprang to life of yes, its own. It has a okay. consciousness of Turn its own. Turn it off. Okay, it's off. <laughs> all right. Um, okay, well, I'll just back up a little bit. Um, so you, um, 
you married at some point. So how long? How long have you been? When did you did you leave monastic life? And and and, and I guess what I want to get at is is how um, the move from um, this this exploration began in a monastic context. Um, yeah. And now, for a number of years, you have lived it in the context of um, of being a married man, um, living more fully in society. So, how has that shaped, reshaped, informed this your solitude project? Well, um, I was a monk for ten years, from the age of twenty to thirty, basically, and uh, then I disrobed and I married. But I married a former nun. Oh, okay. So, um, and we never had any uh, wish to have a family, to have children. And we've dedicated our lives to essentially what we learned and what we trained in as monastics. So it's, a, it, it's, not, a, it's not a sort of a, a normative, typical kind of marriage in that <laughs> okay. sense. Okay. And uh, so in a sense, your question falls not quite on target, as it were, because of our respective, my wife and my respective backgrounds. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, yes, I'm no longer protected by my robes or my vows or my monastery. I have to engage with the world as is. And I found that to be not at all um, somehow in opposition to my deepest values and practices and so on, but actually has provided a very rich environment to explore solitude um, and meditation in a completely non-monastic environment. I think a monastic environment today is largely of value because it affords us a kind of education and training in interiority. And when I, although I took, when I took my monastic vows, I took it quite seriously that this would be a lifelong commitment. But in reality, and this is the case with many of my, my peers, it turned out to be a five to ten year training mm. in mm. philosophy, contemplation, uh, solitude, interiority, all of these things. And once that had been, uh, as it were, achieved, at least to some significant degree, the outward form of monastic life, monasteries, vows, just no longer really seemed to be fit for purpose. It didn't seem right. to be necessary anymore. And this is quite a common trajectory. So again, it goes back to this question of education. If we were to become a society in which we would educate our children uh, from a young age to, to become conscious of their interiority, their solitude, their aloneness, and to give them tools and practices. And nowadays in some schools, they are introducing it's, mindfulness it's, it and It is so starting, on. yeah. It's beginning to happen. Yeah. Then I think, you know, the need to have separate communities apart from society where these things are taught may become less and less uh, needed. And um, so I would like to think of, of a monastic training as becoming, let's say, an alternative to doing a degree course at a university. Mm. Uh, for some people, this would be the, these would be the skills they would wish to train in. Um, they could then become meditation teachers. In they could, ethical uh, intelligence. In ethical a masters of ethical intelligence. Master, yeah, masters <laughs> in ethical intelligence. Yes. Exactly. Um, well, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, keep going. I'm sorry. I've lost my thread. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I mentioned Rilke's two solitudes saluting. Um, how, I mean, I just wonder very practically in the context of 
marriage, and you, as you said, you're married with you're married to somebody who has also cultivated um, mm-hmm. solitude, interior life, um, inwardness. Um, how do you think about the compatibility, or like what what is what is the synergy between a developed solitude and um, and a functioning marriage? Well, I think it helps a lot, frankly. I think uh, we become much more um, attuned in uh, through an intimate relationship uh, to the other person. Uh, we have a capacity, as Rilke perhaps suggests, to be able to be solitude, to be solitary in the midst of that intimacy. That uh, we get to know each other very well, but we also we recognise each other's strengths, weaknesses, blind spots, whatever. And a meditative uh, framework, I think, enables us to actually accept elements of the other person that would perhaps, in a, in a less contemplative relationship, be constantly triggering aversion and disgust and uh, frustration and rage, uh, all of the things that basically lead to so many marriages breaking down. Yeah. We once again do not have the sort of inner training that could perhaps nip a lot of those problems in the bud rather than these, the, the, a moment of anger rising in the mind. You can easily just say, you can direct that all at the other person, at your husband or your wife, yeah. you idiot, you fool, blah, 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 and off it goes. But if we're more attuned to recognizing, oh, here we are, this is the situation's triggering this angry thought. I can see this. It may have some justification. It may not. But I don't have to be the victim of it. I don't have to let that then run the show. And I found in not only in my marriage, but also in many of my relationships with with friends and others, that uh, this kind of training uh, does, I feel, allow us to respond more to the other person rather than just react. Mm. Uh, That, I think, is a crucial distinction. Solitude and cultivating solitude is basically learning how to be less reactive. And that's where emotional intelligence comes in. Emotional intelligence is an intelligence that seeks to respond to the situation from a non-reactive space. And that non-reactive space is solitude slash nirvana. Okay. (laughs) Nirvana is not... Maybe I should little clarify that. Nirvana is not some Buddhist heaven somewhere, some place you go to after you die, or some deep mystical experience you might, if you're lucky, land in one day. But nirvana, as the Buddha defined it, is simply the absence of greed, absence of dislike and absence of egoism. Mm. In other words, it is described as a kind, it's, it's, it's a solitude in which you're not being crowded out by your attra- attachments and your fears and your egoistic confusions. That's what you're solitary from. You see, in, in Tibetan and, 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 and some of these Asian languages, you can, you can use solitude as a verb. You can say, ah. I'm, solitary of, I'm solitary of anger, which means ah. I'm, I'm empty of anger. If you look it up, the word solitude, and look it up in a Tibetan dictionary, it gives us as a synonym uh, emptiness. Oh, that's that to so be empty, it is very interesting. It, it, to be empty of anger means to be solitary of anger, but we can't say that in English. You know, um, that's we can be secluded from anger. Maybe that's really interesting too, because to me, the language of to be solitary of, as opposed to how the how the word emptiness strikes me in English is. Mm-hmm. That to be solitary, it has more agency. 
this solitariness, exactly. right? And uh, it's not a nothingness. It's, no, not it at has all. agency and it has sovereignty. That's right, exactly. And the, the, when I first started studying Buddhism, when I was a young man, the point that my teachers made again and again and again and again was when we talk about emptiness, we don't just mean a sort of a void. Emptiness is only meaningful as an emptiness of something. It's a relative term. It's not an absolute term. You're empty of attachment, okay. say, or empty of a particular opinion. And so the perhaps a better way to render that in English would be to talk of this as a process of emptying, to think of it as a verb. In other words, we empty our minds of our greed and our hatred and our attachment. We don't empty our minds of generosity and love and wisdom. Right. Uh, you have to differentiate in solitude what it is that you're letting go of and what it is you're allowing the space for. Right. The problem with, with anger and hatred and fear and so on is that not that they are uncomfortable and pleasant and often cause a lot of grief. The other problem is they block us from doing anything else. They literally crowd our minds to such a point that we can't really even conceive in that moment of an alternative response. Right. So it's, this yeah. ethic. Sorry. No, no. Yeah, no. And I was just I was thinking about how I was just having this conversation with somebody about forgiveness, which um, which sounds like something you've done for someone else, but in fact mm -hmm. is. Emptying yourself, uh, it's something you do for yourself uh, to not be obsessed, right? It's, yeah. a, it's a way of emptying yourself of, of, of reactions and grievance that, that are only doing you harm. I, I never thought of it like that, but that's absolutely right. Mm. If you forgive, you're actually letting go of something. Mm -hmm. You're letting go of a, a grudge. Or, or, or resentment. Mm -hmm. And in releasing that, you are freeing yourself to think to and be, feel yeah. and act and live differently. Right. And that's the case with solitude. You empty yourself of these things that are getting in your way, and that gives you the foundation for living differently. In other words, making right. different choices, leading an ethical life uh, the, from a different uh, perspective deep down within yourself. So somewhere you said that this art of solitude is... Um... It's an embodied inquiry. And yes. I think like as we've walked through this, what you're describing is really the embodied inquiry of a lifetime, right? You never get perfect yes. at this. You, you never, you'll never get this totally right, no. But it, it, would, keep, it would keep developing and evolving, uh, hopefully getting richer, yeah. which is not to say... You know, one thing I really enjoyed when I interviewed you years ago... Um, is your real reverence for, I mean, I wrote some of these, the massiveness of the questions, um, mm -hmm. the mystery of existence and of, of what is inside us and of the world that only gets more mysterious the more closely you attend to it, the, how, all of, how we and all of this is really so deeply surprising and odd and that there's something so redemptive about just coming to expect that. Mm -hmm. rather than resisting it or being surprised or shocked by it. Um, and, I, and I feel like this, you know, this practice of solitude is kind of this elemental way. It's like a, creating an elemental foundation in yourself to live that way. It, I couldn't have put it better. That, that is an, creating an elemental foundation within yourself to live 
in a way where you're not driven by your reactive patterns and fears, but you're opening the capacity to respond wisely or more wisely, let's mm -hmm. say, more lovingly, more caringly to the situation at hand. But again, as an ethical uh, choice you're making, you're also, it also has an element of risk. You cannot know in advance what is the right thing, you right. Know, that your actions or your words will have the effect you wish. You're basically throwing something that you, you are called upon to, to say or to do. And hopefully that will make an improvement in the world, but it may not. You might get it wrong. And that then will yeah. feed back into your reflective life as to try to understand better the consequences of what you said or did. But and in that sense, it's a constant ref ongoing ethical ref inquiry and, and refinement of a sensibility that will always be with us because perfection in human life, I think, is a pipe dream. Right. That life is constantly <laughs> yeah. throwing us uh, situations that we could not conceivably have foreseen. Our body gets sick, breaks down, all of these things. And at each moment in, uh, in, in, in our existence, we're constantly aware that we're faced with choices. And yes. those choices are being mulled over within us. And then we act. And we're never going to get to a point where you know, you've kind of got that so perfectly that everything you say, do, think will be the right thing for that moment. It's always a challenge. It's always, uh, our lives are always a work in progress. Yeah. Uh, it's a, we're, we are unfinished projects and we'll still be an unfinished project when we die. Yes. Uh, but that is what gives this whole way of living uh, its, its, its urgency, its dynamism, and also I think its, its deep uh, joy. Yeah, it's deep sense of of, uh, of flourishing as a person. Mm. Yeah, it's nothing static about this. Nothing. I mean, solitude is not about shutting down or shutting out. As no, you said. no, 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 mm -hmm. not at all. Mm -hmm. I think somewhere you mentioned there was a couple of people you mentioned that Nelson Mandela, uh, in his enforced solitude of so prison. The, the the how that formed him, which I hadn't heard before, his his sense of the power of words, actually. Yeah, exactly. Where did, did yeah? Where did that come from? Well, yeah, I, I, I'll let I'll let I'll let you into a secret. Okay. <clears throat> when I when I was starting to write the book Solitude, I just I put Solitude into a Google search, and just saw what came up. And I came across a lot of stuff that I then subsequently pursued. And one of them was the quotation from Nelson Mandela. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, I believe this was actually, well, when I looked for the source, it's a, it's a statement he made in a speech he gave somewhere. Uh, it's not in one of his books. It's widely uh, cited on the internet. And um, I think it's a very beautiful passage because it shows that this solitude, which clearly wasn't chosen in his case, it was yeah, the last thing. It was enforced. Yes. And it was totally enforced. Yeah. 27 years of his life. Right. His, you know, his most active adult life in solitude. And yet he's the kind of person who, rather than just becoming lonely and depressed, which I suspect would be a very reasonable way of yeah. reacting to that uh, incarceration, um, he saw it as an opportunity. And what he discovers uh, in the silence and the solitude uh, is the power of words and how powerful words are. Because this is the one thing, this is what he's been cut off from. Yes. Is the capacity to be able to speak. 
And rather than just feel frustrated and limited, he reflects back on what, um, how valuable words are in being able to address um, people's real needs and concerns. And so he seems to have transformed that imprisonment, at least at one level, into a deeper resource within himself. And I think, you know, when he, dis, he is released from jail, and you hear him speak, there's a kind of a, there's a gravity and a, mm. and a maturity mm. and a depth. In the, it doesn't really matter almost what he says. There's something in his tone of voice, something in his whole being that has been nurtured and enriched, it appears, from this long period of enforced solitude and reflection. You know, I'm going to do the same thing and Google that quote because it's so wonderful. I'd like to just read it. Um, I, we have it Are you on, looking for it now? I've got yeah. it, in, my, I've oh, got it, it? in front of me somewhere. Oh, I okay. I think I can find it. Um, um, yeah, here we are. It's, um, well, of course, this, as usual, one never finds the thing one's looking yeah, for. Yeah, I know. Um, oh, here, I've, I've got it. I've okay. got it. Page 152. This is uh, Mandela. He says, It is never my custom to use words lightly. If 27 years in prison have done anything to us, it was to use the silence of solitude to make us understand how precious words are and how real and how real speech is in its impact on the way people live and die. So yeah. he, he starts by saying, I, it's not my custom to use words lightly, as though that too has been learned, that when you have the freedom of speech... Right. Um, right. You, Such a resonant you know, you phrase right now. Yeah. yeah, freedom is exactly. Yeah. But when you're deprived of it, you perhaps learn to appreciate it much more than you did when you had it. And that's the sense I get from him. You really learn to, to, to understand the power of words, paradoxically, mm -hmm. by not having the freedom to speak. Then you really are forced to recognize that when you speak, it's not just about voicing your objections to the apartheid regime and ranting on about this and that, and as most politicians, unfortunately, do tend to do. Is yes. They're just making, they're just trying to score points against the opposition or make grandiose promises they'll probably never be able to fulfill. But if, you're, if that's cut off and you're on your own in a cell and you are forced to really think clearly as to what matters for you in your life, then the silence enhances your appreciation of the power of words. Yeah. The power of, and the power of words to, trans, as he says, the power of words in terms of their impact to affect how other people live, live and, and die. die. It's, it's just such a, an incredible demonstration of, of what you've, we've kind of been walking with and through this mm -hmm. whole conversation about in fact, the seamlessness of what is what appears to be interior and what is yes. exterior. Yes, yes. And how much more robust that relationship and how much more ethical and meaningful that relationship can become with a cultivated interiority, even though in his case it was uh, forced on him. Well, the interior, or the, the, the solitude was forced The solitude on him, was enforced, yeah. The but cultivation of interiority yeah. was something that he... That he was then free, as it were, to pursue. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, it, it is intriguing that uh, that so much of 
what we've been discussing. I mean, so much of what Montaigne was discerning and articulating about the the strangeness of the human condition 400 years ago that neuroscience and other fields in science are kind of giving scientific explanation and language for. And also I feel like Buddhist psychology is being kind of affirmed and mirrored. In, and I, I noticed that you were that you or that you have been have spoken about a collaboration you have coming up with an evolutionary biologist. Does that have any resonance with what we've been speaking about here? Um, this is a project that I've been sort of toying with for some years now, but actually it's gone off the boil recently. Okay. And, um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I, I've always wanted to write about the interface between my f- philosophical and contemplative life and that of the sciences. But I have to admit that at one level, I don't have a scientific bone in my body. Okay. I'm, I'm a humanist, I'm an artist, and that's really what, where my passions lie. So Mark Mesher, my friend, uh, the biologist, and mm-hmm. I have had endless conversations around this. And at the moment, we're thinking we might write a paper, we might okay. write an essay. Right. Uh, but the book project is not happening. Um, so I can't really say you know, much yeah. of okay. interest there. You know, I did want to come back to something you, um, this is just kind of something that's interesting to me, um, may not may not be part of the producer interview, but this, come back to this, uh, the notion that you described uh, from Buddhism about wisdom being something one does for oneself and compassion something one does for others. Because um, I actually did want to ask you, uh, how you understand the quality of wisdom. Um, you know, in my mind, um, but this is more through experience rather than a, a kind of, you know, analytical definition. Um, I feel like wisdom, like a wise life, in many ways is measured by the imprint it makes on other lives. Mm. Um, so I was just curious to hear that definition, which is, quite distinct and I just wondered how you think about what you know what is wisdom as one (laughs) touches it approaches it perhaps in the course of a life Um, well first of all the the framework within which that distinction is made between wisdom on the one hand and compassion on the other the framework is that of of the meaning of life and the uh, in, in some early Buddhist definitions of awakening or enlightenment uh, it's de- awakening is described, or a Buddha is described, as one who has achieved meaning for themselves and meaning for others, mm. literally. That's what the text says. Acquiring meaning for oneself is acquired through wisdom, discernment, reflection, um, whereas acquiring meaning for others is through how you embody that wisdom, that reflection, yeah. in speech in acts, in collaborative endeavors or whatever it might be. And the understanding also that for the awake person, there is actually no, the the two have been totally and utterly integrated. It's not longer, you've got one part of your life where you're doing your meditation, another part of life where you're going out helping people, but actually there's no longer any meaningful differentiation between the two. You have become, as it were, wholly human, completely Mm. Human. Mm. That's the goal. It's an ideal, right. obviously. But that's what you, you aim at. Mm-hmm. Um, so wisdom, 
And again, it may not be the best English word to translate the, the original uh, Tibetan Sanskrit, which implies something more like uh, reflection, discernment, um, inquiry. Uh, that's, in a way, your inner work. Uh, and the result of it is what we might call wisdom. Um, and wisdom is, is, is really, really, really the result of reflective inquiry. It's the result of dwelling upon your life, its meaning. It's the result of your, uh, your abilities to have somehow achieved certain goals in your life, certain projects, and that all of that makes you wiser. And I think we also have to recognize that it, wisdom is a kind of an innate quality too, that we often meet people who have gift. no great education or mm -hmm. they haven't studied Buddhism or anything, and yet they've got this natural intelligence, this wisdom. Yes. Uh, that's quite remarkable, in fact, quite humbling. You know, I spend my adult life trying to become more wise and then I meet someone who has really had no, none of that background at all but seems a lot wiser than me. <laughs> so, um, so I that's hear another you. side of it too. I hear you, but, but tell <laughs> yes. me, but to the extent that you, um, to the extent that, that you've learned some things about wisdom um, in this adventure of your life and your reflection. Um, I don't know, what, what maybe surprises you? Um, well, what surprises me perhaps that wisdom does not, is not, it's not a quality that I would say I'm able to somehow recognize and discern within myself. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a term that I, whose meaning, of course, I understand since I speak English and uh, I value it and so forth and so on. But I think in the end, what I've learned is not to give primary value to some interior understanding of myself or the world, but to see wisdom as actually having cleared out a space in which I'm able to live in a way that's more spontaneously an expression of what moves me most deeply. Hmm. So wisdom has, has, has allowed me if that's the right word, to somehow tease apart those elements of my inner life that I realize to be somehow um, impediments or somehow blocks to being able to freely and imaginatively create, and in my case, to write and to make art. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what, if I have any wisdom, then what it has enabled in my life is a greater spontaneity, uh, creativity, and capacity to imagine. That's how I would see it. And I wonder also at this, um, at, at, at a personal experiential level, if you think about how your understanding of solitude, what it is, what it, what it makes possible, um, mm. how that evolved from your first reflections on this in your 20s um, mm -hmm. some decades ago. Um, and now, you're in your 60s, is that correct? Yes, I'm now, 66. And now in your now. 60s. So, I, and I'm also, I mean, because I think you like to be surprised. Uh, so what, 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 what did you not expect to learn <laughs> that, you've, that you're living um, with now? Possibly I didn't expect to realize how the practice of art would be so central for me mm. in my practice of dharma, my practice of solitude, that uh, the solitude has been of a great enrichment. Meditation has been a great enrichment to me, not because it brought me to some deep private understanding of things, 
but rather because it um, it stimulated my imagination. Mm. And uh, this book, I call it The Art of Solitude. And um, I'm using the word art in both senses, both as, as a way to do something, but also as a work of art. This mm -hmm. book is for the first, it's the first of my books that is not overtly Buddhist. I'm not trying to persuade anybody of a Buddhist interpretation of solitude, but it is also conceived as a collage. Right. And um, in other words, my, my, my visual art and my written work have come together in this project. And I feel if, if there's any wisdom behind that, it's that this has actually uh, been, a, I've actually done this and I think it works. I think the way I've organized the materials along a collage basis using yeah. chance operations and other things has, has I think, uh, been, uh, been really the most surprising thing that's come out of this journey is that, my, is, is that my life is somehow more and more somehow coming together in ways that I could not mm -hmm. have anticipated. And also, wisdom for me is about letting go. It's not holding on. It's the opposite of having opinions and views, and doctrines, okay. and dogmas. It's a kind of more natural intelligence uh, that you learn to trust and you, you follow it, uh, even though rationally you might say, why on earth, where on earth is this going? And what's going to happen? It allows you, I think, also a certain courage and willingness uh, just to follow your intuitions. Hmm. And to, the more you do that and the more that it somehow fills and uh, somehow helps realize what you value, then you learn to trust that intuition even more. But and I, so you yeah. let go. But of you've ego also, you know, the practice that you've also followed, you know, for so much of your life has mm -hmm. refined and formed and deepened in those intuitions, right? It's Yes. It all goes hand in hand. Yeah. Um this is this is kind of an absurd question. Um, so I just wonder how would you start thinking about the question, the, the vast question uh, of what it, what it means to be human, um, how that is present for you and perhaps evolving right now, this week, today, in your life. This week. <laughs> well, I think there are two, there's two answers to that. One is to think of the project of becoming human as a work in progress, as an unfinished project that has in, in one's inner life its root in an ongoing perplexity and puzzlement and confusion, what Montaigne calls ignorance, which, of course, in a Buddhist perspective, would seem very strange. But for Montaigne, he, calls, he, he says, my master form is ignorance. In other words, a deep not knowing. Mm. And it's that deep not knowing. Uh, in other words, emptying oneself of opinions and views and beliefs and so on. The more that one does that, the more you somehow come to rest in this primal humility of the fact that this world is boundlessly mysterious and unknowable. And yet at the same time, that is the fount, the origin of how you then respond to this mystery of life in its specificity, right. in the work I'll have to do next weekend to teach a meditation retreat. I don't prepare a great deal for it. I trust those intuitions, but I also recognize that they are only meaningful to me if they can help me respond to the people in the room, can respond to 
uh, my public who read my books in such a way that I can actually give a, a concrete form and shape and pattern to something that another part of me recognizes to be deeply unpin-downable, ineffable. And it's the paradox, again, between the ineffable and the effable, right. uh, the mysterious and the concrete, uh, that is the kind of driving tension for how I seek to live my life uh, from moment to moment. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. Um, thank you, I so Krista. enjoyed the book. I so enjoyed the conversation. And, um, yeah, I wish you well in your travels and your teaching now. And we'll let you know what's happening with this when we have a sense of it. Well, Thank you very much. As with last time, I find you are a most wonderful conversation. Partner. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. It would be lovely to meet in person. Yes, I hope. I keep uh, thinking that we might cross paths. Um, but you please do say hello to Joan, to Roshi Joan. I will. And send sure. her my love. And uh, I, I will. hope to see her again, too. Maybe we can all get together somewhere. Thank that you. Be good. Yeah, blessings. Okay, thank you, Krista. Yeah. All best. Yeah. Bye-bye. Ciao.